0: This is CliffCentral.com.
1: Good morning and welcome to Disrupt with Impulment Lapo powered by T System South Africa. Um on this show we focus on immersive disruption through in-depth conversations with industry leaders on disruptive business and emerging technology trends across various industries. With each of our guests we explore the journey of how they pioneered as game changers and became avid disruptors. In the studio with me today, I've got Stafford Massey. Stafford, welcome to the show. Good morning. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for having me here. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. Great. Thank you. Um, I'm very excited. You know, Stafford and I, as I do with most of the guests, we've had a discussion just before the show. Um, but to introduce you to Stafford, um, he was previously the general manager of Google South Africa. He's founded his own company now called Thumbs Up, which we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. Stafford has been in the IT industry for more than it says here. Some of us can remember. I can remember. I don't think it's
0: been too long or that long. Yeah, uh, I d- I d- it's been long. It's been a long yeah. time. Yeah. Every time I look at that number, it keeps going up every <laughs> year. And I'm, I'm starting to feel old now. And prior to this,
1: you um, prior to venturing out on your own, you were Google Manager of... Uh, sorry, General Manager for Google
0: South Africa from 2007 yeah, to 2009. Yeah, I established the presence in South Africa. They didn't established have, Google yeah, Africa. in South yeah, Africa. They, yeah. uh, they never had a presence before that. I was the first guy to join them. Uh, flew to London. They gave me a laptop and uh, they said, go start Google in South Africa. <laughs> so I flew back from London after 18 interviews and yeah, Google started. I, I ran Google for about nine months before anyone knew that it was here. Wow. Um, I flew to Israel and spent a couple months in Israel to understand how Google worked. Because when, when I got the job, I didn't understand the business model. I didn't understand how this thing, how do they make money? Yeah, you know, they wow, make, how, exactly. Like, but they're here already. Yeah. So what are you talking about? So it was very, very cool to be a part of that experience because… You know, when I came back from Israel, obviously I was involved in establishing the ecosystem and, and being very involved in it, But it was really nice being involved in uh, the establishment of Google Maps uh, and going through the acquisition of map data and and uh, the Street View stuff, um, writing the business plan for Street View to uh, submit it to Nakesh Aurora, who was the the head of uh, the region, and um, justifying why they should accelerate doing Street Limit. View in South Africa it was pre-2010 yeah. and I used a lot of the World Cup stuff to justify the people will be um, here yeah, trying to get here, exactly. yeah exactly so we had Street View we had Google Maps we did um, the a localization version of YouTube I think after I left Google they did the big launch but uh, you know a lot of that was justified there was a lot of business case writing and planning happening internally to justify the localization and the investment to get Google engineers to come down build infrastructure acquire the necessary assets to deliver on all the services lots of work goes on in the background to the- make Google better in a particular country, and you said eighteen interviews, and I believe your employment
1: contract was signed right at the top.
0: Well, you know, people I've seen that people say, well, you know, Larry and Sergey signed his employment contract. We need to take a step back. Um, When I joined Google, it was still that time where there wasn't there was a lot of employees, but uh, it was well known that Larry and Sergey reviewed every uh, new hire pack. Okay. I don't know if they still do it. It wasn't as though they looked at Stafford's particular employment contract and went, okay, we want to sign that one. Not, no, no, nothing like that. It was, um, I think, director level and up at least, uh, they were still signing off on the employment packs. So you'd go through your 18 interviews, they would get the pack of the top candidates, and before you were hired, um, it had to go through them. And they'd look at who you were, what you said, et cetera. And, you know, I learned a lot when I was a Google from a hiring practice perspective, how to hire good people. That's one thing that I took away from Google that was, has still today been extremely valuable to me. And that is how to identify great talent. Uh, great human beings. And, and it's a very simple mantra, right? Because I always tell entrepreneurs and I sit down with them, it's not about your product. It's not about the service. It's not a- about what you want to build. Mm. Um, it's about the people that you want to establish around it. It's about building a team. Don't build great products and services. Build great teams. Because great teams can pivot. Products metamorphosize. They change. Um, you've got to change them. Sometimes you have to redo them. Sometimes you have to shelve it and start again. A great team can do that. So never depend on a product or a piece of technology or service or an opportunity. You know, I always look at the team. Yeah. If you build a great team, so how do you build a great team, right? So at Google, I I, I learned some things there, and we got taught that as directors. So okay. we had the recruitment department. They'd look at the CVs and vet them from a academic achievement and a general T's and C's perspective. So when you got the pack, you got a CV of somebody that you didn't have to go through from an academic achievement perspective. So we were taught when I ask you. Um, about yourself mm-hmm. um, You say What do you do um, Oh you're a scuba diver So tell me more About scuba diving Yes I'm in this specialization I'm an advanced I'm a dive master I do shark so, Okay cool What else um, no, that's it. I just really, really love it. I'm passionate about it. With strike, a big red cross on. Uh, oh, okay. you fly. You also fly. You've got your private pilot license. Yes, I got my night rating. I'm doing my helicopter license. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I've got, I fly this. I'm certified for these engines, twin engines. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. What else? Tell me more. No, no, no. That's what I do. I just really love it. Strike. Do you, we, we looked at every single thing that you did. And what we were looking for wasn't a cosmopolitan resume. What we were looking for was someone that says, you know what? I'm a pilot and I'm helping these three disadvantaged kids to become pilots too because I really feel, you know, it's an opportunity for them. And I'm starting to go around to schools to tell kids about becoming a pilot. Um, You know, I scuba dive. And um, I'm a specialization in this area and I'm a DM and, and all those good things. And I'm going around with Paddy and I'm exposing kids in El Dorado Park to scuba diving. That, you know, It's not just white kids that go into the ocean. Uh, the ocean is actually a beautiful place to go and this is what the opportunities and the career opportunities. We were looking for people that showed interest in diverse areas, sure, but showed interest in sharing their skill sets that they had acquired in those diverse areas with others. Okay. And that sharing and that leadership, if it's done um, organically, so no one's telling them to do it and they're displaying those attributes, hire people like that because people like that coming into your business will just get on with it. You'll never have to manage them, which – and when you have a startup or you're building an emerging business, HR is always an expense. If you hire good people for a while, you will not need HR. You won't need to manage them, which means you can just get on with stuff. So it's all about building great teams and that's what I learned at Google. And that was invaluable. So every time I was involved in the interview processes, they taught us what to look out for. Ah. And those are those little things. So that's the stuff that they don't tell you. Yeah. But, um, it's, it's an, I think those are nuggets that if you're going to start a business, if you have an idea, if you're an entrepreneur out there listening to this, um, don't focus so much on your idea, focus on hiring great, great people.
1: So no, let's, let's latch onto that. Um, I mean, you were at Telcom, you were at Novell, Mm -hmm. Google, and then you founded Thumbs Up. Yeah. And that was in 20. 10. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Somewhere in just twenty. Like, like after the World Cup, yeah. Um, talk to me about Thumbs Up. So let's just start off basics. What does Thumbs Up do as a company? I know mm-hmm. um, your philosophy to business, your mantra to business is embodied in a little bit of what you've shared now. But yeah. can you talk to us just what is Thumbs Up and what does it do? And then we
0: can get into... The makeup of the business. Okay, cool. So when I left Google, I um I got involved and in, I took a bit of a sabbatical. Um, okay. I actually left Google, and you know, many people ask why did you leave Google. There was lots of reports about uh, you know things that happened to me, and like you know, the thing is I had lots of personal challenges at the time, and I felt I was gonna take a break away from. From everything And just focus on my life Okay You know I was trying to save A lot of things in my life And this is that part Of entrepreneurship That no one speaks about Which is the tough stuff Right So people look at, at Entrepreneurs And they think Wow look how successful That guy is Look at what he does On stage The great speeches The great products The success The big money Look behind that curtain and and you, I wonder if you'd still desired if you knew the rest of the story. I mean, you look at Elon Musk. I'm not comparing myself. I'm just taking a look at the Uber guys out there, right? The big guys, Elon Musk. You take a look at, um, you know, Steve Jobs. These are people that are generally hard. They're different personalities. They um they, their marriages generally don't work. They they don't have time for friendships and family. They normally have children in disparate areas on the planet. And you know, that's the that's the the, the, the stuff that you pay. That's the tax that you pay mm. as an entrepreneur, especially a successful entrepreneur. So I anyway, I left Google and I decided to get into the financial services space and see what it was all about because there was a lot of transaction activity stuff happening there and I didn't understand the technology. But what drove me was um a moment where I sat with a multinational CEO in the reception of um, a senior government official okay. um, in Gauteng. I okay. won't name names, right? But I sat there and we were waiting in reception. And we were supposed to see him and this lady walked in, black lady, and she had a baby in a blanket wrapped, you know, on her back. And she was completely in tears. The baby was in tears. It was very traumatic. I mean, they were just crying. I couldn't understand what they were saying. This senior gentleman came out and he told us, sorry guys, I can't see you right now. I have to see this lady. Long story short, I asked the receptionist, what was that about? And she said that they had sent someone out to her house because she had not paid her utilities. And it was in winter. She Hmm. had given birth to twins. Okay. They went out, switched off her water and lights, even though she could pay. She had a card in her wallet. She had money on her. She had a bank account, etc., but she was hurt during childbirth. Yeah, And her husband doesn't live at home. He works on a mine somewhere. So she couldn't make this payment, although she had all the means to make it, but physically she couldn't. They switched off her utilities, and because of the exposure, she lost one of her kids. Sure. And I sat there, and I realized, you know what? When payment doesn't work, people die. People actually die. So financial services is not a game. It's not a fun technology like we talk about fintech. We need to take a step back and realize that in the financial services space, when people, when things don't work, people die. And when you optimize financial services, it's incredible how you change lives. Yeah, a lot of people catch two buses, a taxi to go make a payment at a municipal government building somewhere, or you know, to interface with government to pay them in some way or form. Um, and so, so, if you can bring payment closer and closer and closer, then you could solve. And and that was and that lady. And that baby is the reason I decided to branch out from my traditional ICT work at the time, which, which was to engage with multinational software vendors with their software made elsewhere and deployed in South Africa. And I realized I needed to do something. I needed to build my own technology to solve that particular problem. Okay. So Thumbs Up was birthed from that conviction. Um, I wanted to do that. I wanted to do something for that woman Okay. and that child. And so, yeah, we sat around and I thought, geez, you know, card… Proliferation in terms of people paying with card was all over the place in South Africa. Could I build technology to allow, you know, disparate mobile payments anywhere and using card-based technology? And we came up with the idea of why don't we build this little thing that plugs into a phone? into the audio jack yeah. and converts it into a card acceptance machine. Now, when we did that, there was a company called Square in the United States, but we didn't even know Square existed. I mean, it was about a year later that we discovered, oh, there's this thing called Square. square. Yeah. The difference was, you know, Jack Dorsey in the United States was working on a little white dongle, little square dongle, plugged into the audio jack. Um, he just had to cater for non-secure swipe cards. I had to build the product. To cater for secure chip cards. Because yeah. in South Africa, we the do chip inter- and pin. The pin interface. Yeah. yeah. He, they don't do pin in the United States. Okay. Even up until today, they don't do pin. Although they're supposed to, they still haven't switched over. Yeah. So he was, he was innovating in a non-secure domain. So he didn't have the barriers to entry that I had. And so when we embarked on this journey, um, we failed tremendously because I, oh, I underestimated the, the effort. Um, we, we engineers fell off the bus. As we continued, because okay. we had engineers looking at me, going, "What you're trying to build doesn't, is not possible. You're not going to be able to do this." And um yeah, I just kept on going, kept on going. And and what drove me, and I, this is what we discussed earlier when you and I kind of opened up. It's uh, you know what what drives an entrepreneur is a conviction, not passion, and not embracing failure. Trust mm. me, failure was horrible. It's horrific to fail. I don't like to fail. But then, w- yeah. what
1: would make you want to? venture so deep on this particular venture because I'm, look- I'm sure there were a lot of ideas a lot of thoughts a lot of things yeah. happening at the time
0: why this one because i kept on thinking about that lady yeah and that moment and those tears and uh you know just just I, that it's still up until today i choke up when i think about it because i've built all the pain every day when i woke up feeling like i should give up and not to do this i kept on thinking about that lady Thinking, man, if I don't do this, you know, who's, who's, who's going to do it? Who's going to, how many of them out there are crying this morning because they couldn't make a payment and something happened traumatic or their lives are just so difficult. So I just, that was that thing that just kept me coming back, kept me coming back. And I, that's why I say entrepreneurship is made up of two categories of entrepreneurs, right? It's a, and we need to be careful with entrepreneurship. Mm. Um, there are innovative entrepreneurs and then there are inventive entrepreneurs, innovative entrepreneurs take what's there. And they optimize it. So the guys go out and they build a services-based organization. And um, you know they coalesce and coagulate a whole bunch of skills and they build mobile apps. So they either create a digital agency or the mobile app development company or they, they build whatever it is. So they don't own the phone. They don't own the operating system. They don't own the SIM in the phone. They don't own the network. Mm-hmm. So they utilize the assets that are there with human skills, et cetera, and they And they, they build great companies. And we have lots of those. Uh, innovative entrepreneurs is where the volume of entrepreneurship in terms of entrepreneurs live. Um, there's another category which is not well defined and I call them inventive entrepreneurs. Inventive entrepreneurs are people that make things that don't exist in the first place. Um, there is no reference material. Um, there's nothing to go, there's no, you know, there's no Gartner magic quadrant that says top right. Uh, mm. There's no best practice. You're building something that doesn't have a market yet. You have to establish a market for it. You have to establish demand. And it's a very difficult road being an inventive entrepreneur. In inventive entrepreneurship, things that benefit innovative entrepreneurs are temporal in the inventive category. You know, in innovative entrepreneurs will always talk about passion, passion, have passion, passion. Passion runs out. I mean, you get fucking tired of passion. Mm. Um, failure gets… You get fatigued, man. You fail so much. Inventive entrepreneurs fails very rapidly, very often and spectacularly. That's why failure is, is a scary thing for us. Yes, failing and learning and, you know, we talk about, you know, if failure is valuable, learn to do it too, you know, and, and they say valuable failure has two assets to it. Number one is, um, it's only, it's valuable when two things happen. You identify it early and you do it quickly. Yeah. You know, that's when failure is. that's okay. For the innovative entrepreneurs. But inventive entrepreneurs, generally, that means huge amounts of money loss. That means huge amounts of impact. So so passion runs out in this space. Um, failure is something that we try to avoid in in, in in as inventive entrepreneurs. But what gets us out of bed consistently all the time, involuntarily, uh-huh. is conviction. It's that lady crying, saying, if I can build this, man, if I can get this right – if I can do this, you know your focus is not market share, your focus is not on revenue, your focus has got nothing to do with monetization there's no monetary value that 's the focal point in your business plan. Yes, you need the business plan, yes, your investors so so you really have to ensure as an inventive entrepreneur when you're led by a conviction and a conviction is generally defined on the basis of changing a life for Make, the better. making that impact making that impact so now, yeah
1: if if you 'd allow me so if I fast forward to Current day, yeah. um, so thumbs up. You've shipped over fifty thousand units. Uh, what's the number? I mean, I don't. It's I think it's higher than that. Now. Is it higher than that? Yeah. So, so let's yeah. say into the multiples. of In 10 South Africa alone, we've
0: done over thirty-five thousand wow. devices. In Australia, we're probably beyond twenty-eight thousand now. Okay. Um, in Southeast Asia, we entry level now in the. Th- Thousands Okay I've lost track So upwards yeah. of a 100,000 devices shipped uh, we we aiming We're getting there
1: Okay Yeah I don't know If we're there just, <laughs> yeah. and, and you've I mean you've raised Huge amounts of capital yeah. To invest
0: into the business mm-hmm. Um Where's the business now? So where the business is right now is in South Africa, we're number one in our particular space. Okay. Um, I think more than 80% or more than 85% of all mobile point of sale transactions happening in South Africa is, is running across our uh, solution set and our platform. Okay. Are we doing billions? Um, in transaction volume, okay, uh, per annum in South Africa, so we're quite we're quite big here. Um, we have a different model. People don't really know about us because we are B two B business, okay. Um, and and we chose B two B because I feel B two B may be the harder path, but it is financially and sustainably for a period of time at least, the easier path. You know, you don't need as much money. Example, we partnered with APSA in South Africa. Yes. And they shipped the APSA Payment Pebble. You know, I trademarked the name Payment Pebble. They licensed it. So today it's called the APSA Payment Pebble. Okay. They've got um, thousands and thousands of merchants live. Um, they saved me. I didn't have to hire sales force. I didn't have to do any marketing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So they've taken the product to market, white labeled, and we got lots of learnings, especially um, in the beginning because we didn't know how this would, be you know, adopted, and mm. they went on that journey with us. They believed in the conviction, and that's the thing with conviction-orientated entrepreneurs. Um, I generally encourage them to establish B2B businesses. Why it, you require less capital to raise funds to hire softer skills. You can stay with your hard skills as long as you can get a business to buy into your vision and values and your conviction. If you can do that, it's incredible. But, uh, we the, the nice thing about APSA was that the people in the room bought into – our conviction. Yeah. When I stole the story, I saw the eyes welling up in the room. So you sold them on the story, not on the technology. Yeah. Oh,
1: and it, was, it had to be a quality product. They shared
0: in the conviction. Yes. That is, but that, you know what? When people share in your conviction, it's incredible the amount of failure they will allow you to. Yeah. To, the to, leeway to, they'll give you to because get Because they right. feel a part of your organization. So the people that were in the room at the time with APSA felt a part of our failure when we failed. And so the tolerance for failure was very, very high, which is unlike what a financial institution a bank would do. Mm. But I've learned that if you build things on a true and genuine conviction and you drive it, it's incredible. We will come along and, and, and work with you. So in South Africa, that's where we are now. We've shipped in Australia with A and Z. Okay. ANZ Bank, one of the biggest banks in there. Yeah. They're the largest retail bank in Australia. They've shipped the product. Uh, they launched it, um, last year. It's on my Twitter feed. Um, the, um, ANZ Bank's calling it the ANZ Fast Pay Card Reader. It's a long name. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so it's a very interesting world over there because we have to support contactless. So we have to do chip and pin, mag and pin, QR, and we have to do tap and go. So wow. contactless cards, tap, top tap your Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, and also your contactless card. So we have to support all that, which the device does. Uh, and, we, yeah. and, and is that? Purely just adding a, another bit
1: of functionality, or is it a new world of innovation? Every time you have to support new these new f-
0: interfaces. If I had my engineers in the room, they'd say, "My goodness, it's hard. Yeah. This stuff's hard. This is really financials." There's probably two industries that, if you're an entrepreneur, be very very careful of and be very very scared of, and that's I think healthcare and financial services. I just think because they are thousands of years old, right? If not more. I mean, the the, the uh, taking care of our bodies, the healthcare system goes back to. You know, snake oil days mm. and, and, you mm. know, and, and all the way to where it's grown up. So legislatively, it's extremely arcane. Lots of requirements, tick boxes, um, incumbents. It's very really difficult. Financial services has the same thing. Trade, human exchanging of goods, um, is thousands of hundreds of thousands of years old. You know, yeah. we go back to coins that they've discovered in the Roman times. We wow. keep going back BC. So fast forward to today. So these are industries that are deeply entrenched, um, in our psyche. Um, in how we do things, so they don 't change often the users that are uh, you know within the ecosystem, and legislatively they 're very difficult to innovate and so so yeah we every time we make a change uh, it 's not just making a change it 's extremely difficult to implement that change because we are governed by International security orientated services, things like people will know this in the financial services industry, list. things like EMV and PCI. These are international standards that are extremely difficult. And okay. you know, the form factor that we have, we're very small. We're one of the smallest devices in the world. Okay. So we have several patents associated with our technology. And the, I'm proud to say that it's built in South Africa. It's manufactured in Randburg yeah. and it's shipped all over the world from here. Yeah. So yeah, so we, we've, uh, we, we've grown though from the payment paper. We now have the payment blade. Okay. Which is um, a device – Little Payment People now has its own mobility platform. Uh, okay. And so now, you don't have to rely on a mobile device. Yes. You're gonna, we, mo- we give it to you. It's part of the, the, the solution and the stack. And it's changed our business again. Okay. Because now it's less about the hardware and we're actually looking at the services that we can aggregate on top of the platform okay. to add value to you. So as a merchant, it's not just about enabling you to accept an electronic form of payment. But it's adding value, you know, um, a, a tavern owner out in the townships. Can we enable him to do electronic bill presentment and payments? So, you know, he gets a cut if someone pays a municipal bill at his tavern. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, his DSTV bill can be paid there. Mm. His Orlando Pirates ticket can be paid there. Yeah. So those are services. So it's not just about enablement, but it's also about wealth creation and creating On a platform. On top of the platform. Yeah. So and let me,
1: let's talk about that a little bit because, you know, when, when we speak to CEOs uh, and you come from the industry, so you'll understand this, yeah. but, there's always this challenge of kind of keeping the lights on, right? So, mm-hmm. so running my current business and yeah. making sure business as usual is, 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 is reliable, sustainable, but also this need to innovate on the other side. Mm-hmm. And I guess you kind of have the similar challenge where you need to keep it secure, robust and working in terms of the, the core of the business, but you're also innovating as well. Yeah. How do
0: you bring those two worlds together? Man, if, if I gave you a simple answer, I think uh, we'd solve a lot of problems out there. I think this yeah. is the, this is the dilemma, right? And it's, it, you can, you can apply it into, in, in so many various areas. Example, you know, when you make a hardware product, which we make, mm. we make our own hardware. Um, you've got to make that, you know, you've got to make sure it's innovative, it's sexy, yeah. but then you've got to make sure that it's, it's affordable. You know, you've got to make sure that it overcomes any literacy challenges. And that's what Africa presents to you, right? Yes. you talk about how do you do these things on a, on a kind of a Harvard business review level, right? I'll tell you something. It's a terrestrial challenge also. Mm. It's not just about being innovative yet ticking the boxes and keeping the lights on. Um, yes, that is one challenge, but it's also how do you build a product that is innovative, seen as innovative, that can live in an African environment? Because so, Africa presents so many challenges to you, right? Price sensitivity is huge. Your literacy you know languages is a huge diversity challenge. diversity yes. security you can't give someone a valuable device because if it has value they get, get stolen or they disappear they don't come to work the next day yeah. um if you give it to them they become a target you know they um different languages people are not technologically literate per se so you've got to give them something that is plug and play you can't you can't You can't give them a solution that requires a little manual to make it work. That's why we didn't do Bluetooth with our device. There were so many Bluetooth things going on. The reason we avoided that and went for the audio jack, which people don't know, is because we wanted to make it extremely simple. Okay. It was a very difficult engineering path. Very difficult. But we knew that if we picked the difficult, innovative engineering path, then we'd have a device that you take out the box, you plug in, and it just works. So that's how the Pebble works. The Pebble doesn't require any training. I mean, you can give it to a teenager and say, hey, this device takes card payments. How does it work? Plug it in the order jack of your phone. Okay. Then what? Launch the mobile app. Then what? Works. Put the total in. Take the payment. No, absolutely no user. We wanted it to be that user friendly. To get it there took a couple of years. Okay. Which people don't know. So how do you innovate? Well, when you innovate and you focus on the hard path, the resultant is a product that's extremely simple and usable, um, cost effective. That's mobile, rugged, and all those things. Now, to manufacture a product like that at scale at a price point that makes sense to the market in South Africa um, is extremely complex. But I think that's why you you are who you are when you build the organization. You've got to make sure that you orchestrate and ratchet all these levers. You know, it's not just about building a great piece of innovative technology. Mm. You've got to make sure that it's something that will keep the lights on. It's something that is affordable. It's something that fits the marketplace and everything that we've built. We've built, you know. Number one, based on the conviction. Number two is not on our ideas. We build it on what we see in the field. So when just we give, explain that a bit more, so we build it from the from our users backwards. So we look at what businesses are challenged with, and that's how we come up with our definition and our scope for okay. our solution set. Okay, you know, if you take a look at the biggest challenge that merchants have today, yes, it is card payments. Um, you know, look at the just look at the guy that fixes your gate or fixes your plumbing. You know, why why can't those human beings afford the technology to enable them to accept an electronic payment? To accept your card. So he fixes your tap, he stays there till eleven o'clock at night and he tells you the bill is four and a half K. Wow. Okay, you can't go to an ATM at eleven o'clock at night. Absolutely not. So he writes a piece of paper and he disappears. You know, we're solving that guy's problem by giving him a little payment pebble that's fifty Rand a month. And he can throw it in his toolbox and eleven o'clock at night he plugs it into his phone and he takes the electronic payment directly into his bank account. We provide you know reconciliation services and all those value added services. But it, it goes further than that. It's it's understanding that business problem working backwards but then understanding that there are businesses a little bit bigger than just the plumber. When I mean, you go take a look at go walk into your local Kauai or your new or your your coffee shop, yep. look over the counter. It's insane what's going on. They've got three card machines. They've got a big point of sale, big fat this, fat this. Yeah. Our, we see an opportunity to converge all that technology into a single platform and eradicate all that clutter on the desk and um give the merchant the ability to accept any form of payment coming into his store off a single platform and for the consumer to pay with anything using any mechanism and being recognized transversely across the all single platform. channels yeah. on a single platform. That's the opportunity out there today, still today. We haven't solved it. So that's still an opportunity today. So if someone wants to jump in the game, jump in. <laughs> the water's warm, yeah. but it's very deep. <laughs> yeah. It's very, very yeah. deep. And it's, and again, back to the financial services challenges. You know, the space is well legislated. We have to comply to a lot of rules. Um, we can't just light up a service. We've got to make sure that it, it, it aligns legislatively. So it's, 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 it's being innovative within the rules is probably the greatest lesson I've learned with Thumbs Up, is how do you innovate? And not break the rules. Because okay. we always think about innovators and mavericks as rule breakers. Okay. In the financial services space, in the healthcare space, no, 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 no. You don't come in here and just break rules. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta comply. Because a lot of the rules that exist are not necessarily bad. They exist because they protect the consumer or they protect the ecosystem. You know, that's why uh, cards, credit cards and debit cards work so well. People say, why do they work so well? Well, I'll tell you three reasons. Number one, a card doesn't have a battery yep that's the first thing right so you don't have to work with anything in your pocket that requires a battery so a car just sits there. number two is it works anywhere in the world you go to Portugal you put your card into a machine, it works. Yeah. There's a global fabric there. So global usability, even if it's Portuguese on the payment acceptance machine, you are so well-versed with the EMV flow, the payment flow. You know how it works. When we went to Brazil the other day and you know, my wife just knew how to do it even though the prompts on the ATM or the card machine... She, had, watch, the she had the feel for it. She had the feel for it. She knew what it was asking. Number three is, if something happens, anywhere in the world with your card, you call your bank, you get your money back. Yeah. There's nothing that matches those three legs. And uh, we've learned to respect those three legs. And we've learned to respect what banks are. And we've learned to respect the legislative frameworks. And we know why they exist because they provide a very mature legislative framework for risk liability protection, which allows us to create a sustainable business. So sometimes as entrepreneurs, we've got to be careful. We think we're going to just walk in there and change the game. First, understand the ecosystem. Yes, Really, really understand it well and then work backwards from there. And that's what financial services will force you to do. you You've also now, ve- you, you're manufacturing hardware. Yes. And,
1: um, if I look at your background, I mean, it's largely software mm. um, companies that you're in. And, you know, as South Africans, we're not necessarily um, that established into manufacturing hardware, yeah. especially in the technology space. Yeah. You could have left it at the platform level, mm-hmm. right? But you went the full, yeah the full way to actually manufacturing
0: the, these devices as yeah. well. What drove that decision? Um, cause there was nothing like it in the world okay there was nothing like it if i wish someone had built like a payment pebble thing then i may have invented a, a platform around it yeah and then made my platform multi-device and you know it would make it more kind of homogeneous make yeah. it more yeah. you know general purpose yeah. and i would have built that and i think there's still an opportunity today to do something like that because of the innovation on the hardware side which is starting to become commoditized but we jumped in it because there wasn't anything like it and when we whiteboarded the stuff um there was no one to manufacture our device either. We had to build up our manufacturing line from the ground up. Um, and you know what? Uh, you know, Japanese build cars in a certain way. Okay. Germans build cars in a certain way. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, German cars have a reliability thing and they've got like a, they've got like a sex appeal to them and Japanese have like, you know, it'll live forever. The Toyota Camry will be with you for 30 years and yes. you know, there'll be parts and everything. They all have their capabilities. So different nations and nationalities seem to have an incredible assets. Just. In their DNA, white guys that speak Afrikaans in Pretoria, in Centurion specifically, are incredible hardware engineers. I would venture to say that some of the top hardware engineering skills in the world exist in South Africa. Wow! Because a lot, in their families, you know, the government, Danelle, and those, you know, apartheid days, those guys didn't have access to technology. They had to build their own technology, and so the skill sets. And whatever's in the water that they drink over there, you mix that up. I mean, it's just incredible the skill set. So in my organization, in our office in Centurion, I, 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 I've, I've got the best team in the world. I actually, when someone says, um, "What's the difference in your product and another product," I don't say, I don't talk about the product. I say I've got the best team in the world, wow. and I've just recognized the best team. I mean, it's it, we, we, we closing deals, um, all over the world, not because of our product excellence it's because of our team we have an incredible team and these these guys are just magicians when it comes to hardware so uh, you, you say that i come from a software background that's completely correct i jumped into this hardware game without understanding it well yeah but i will say south africa's l- skill level when it comes to hardware and making of hardware is incredible it depends on where you go though i find in, C- in petoria centurion you know these afrikaans white boys are just incredible <laughs> they're really, really cool. So in my organization, I got a ton of them and they're just brilliant and I love them and they, they build incredible things. And when, when I have shower moments, I love going to the office and say, guys, it's builders and they actually build it and they prototype it. And luckily we live in the age of 3D printing. Okay. And so we work with some of the universities so we can do rapid prototyping. Um, so engineer, you know, I, I think 10 years ago, if I jumped into this, it would have been a lot harder. Okay. I think now to build hardware, don't be scared. Jump in it. Mm. Hardware's never been cheaper, more open source, more Able to be prototyped and fabricated and and built. I mean, and and we're building it. So yeah, it's it was it was it was difficult. Um, but I had the right team, okay. and I hired. The, I hired. I always say, you know, higher insane passion, perpetual positivity, intermingled with integrity over any level of competency.
1: Okay, and you'll figure the rest out. Yeah, the rest
0: will come. Yeah, yeah. It's all about the team.
1: And so, uh, you know, you you you're latching on to now very topical things around mm-hmm. emerging technologies. Right. You've mentioned three uh, D printing. There's yeah. Internet of Things. There's mm-hmm. cloud. So there's a lot happening. Yeah. Um. And, and I will kind of pull it back to a corporate um question, just right. just purely because um it lends itself to what a lot of us experience, right? right. Um, these things still seem like. You know, they're parked to say those are things for the future. We'll get there. We're still dealing with our business today. <laughs> and, and you know, um, often when I present or speak to, um, to senior leaders, I, I kind of try to sell them on or try to let them understand that it's real and it's here and it's now. Yep. Um, what's your stance on that? I mean, cause you're dealing, you're dealing nicely in that space. You're an entrepreneur, yeah. but your customers, because you wide label your products, are big corporates, yes. large financial institutions. Yeah, and what in, are you seeing in, yeah, out there?
0: Totally. And I, I see it out there. So, so in my personal space, I'll just wrap it this way. In my personal space, I, I lecture at quite a few of the business schools in South Africa, so yes. Henley, What's Business School, Gibbs. I've been a guest lecturer at quite a few of the events. I engage with the MBA, so I and I I, I do it often. Yeah. It feeds me, yes, and I love doing that. I love engaging with the master's-oriented students, and because they come from corporate, and so I get their views, you know, in the class, and, yes. And we we normally do kind of Stafford Unplug sessions, talking about where the world's going, and then getting their views, which has been invaluable to me. Um, and then yes, obviously I get in, I get pulled into corporate CEO offices because of, you know, friends and, yeah, yeah. You know, just your staff would come in and I'm going to bring all my guys in a room because just tell us what's going on. yeah I think everyone understands there's something happening. They feel the current in the water. They don't understand it fully. Governments are now starting to wake up to it and everyone's talking about this fourth industrial revolution. If I hear another government person saying fourth industrial revolution, I'm going to hit them. <laughs> but I mean, everyone's not talking about this fourth industrial revolution. But essentially, um, we live in a world now you know, where it's a little bit different from the industrial revolution. You know, in the industrial revolution, it was all about having the highest skyscraper, you know, the most floors, uh, the glowing logo on the building, and yes. all the university students desired to go work at the branded company. And you kind of won on size, and your human capital was derived from your brand. Um, and then we started understanding that those things are not as important when we started seeing technology evolve in businesses, and became things around information. We call it information workers. Right, and we introduced new forms of culture into businesses. Mm. So people wanted to be more information sharing and information was important in businesses. And then we went to, well, it wasn't just about information, it was about knowledge. And we started the notion of knowledge workers. Yeah. And, then, and then we evolved our cultures as enterprises into collaborative enterprises. Like we listen to our customers and you know we listen to our employees and we uh, you know, collaboration is the, the new word. And I hear that often, collaboration. I think all of those things are important. But we live in a world of co-creativity now. You know, co-creativity is the new mantra. It's the, it's the new fundamental substrate to sustainability as an enterprise. Um, Bill Joyce says, I call it Joyce Law and I'm just going to paraphrase, but no matter who you are, no matter what you make, there are more competent and capable people on the outside of your firewall relative to your core business than yes. on the inside of your firewall. Relative so, to the core. Yeah, relative to the core. So no matter what you're building, no yeah. matter what product and service, no matter how good you are at it, no matter how good you, your people are, at the end of the day, you need to realize as an enterprise, there's actually more people on the outside relative to what you do in your core that's better than you so how and do you bring, more of them. So how do you bring them in? How do you so leverage them? So that's the them? trick. So technology is, is lowering the barriers to entry. So it's... And, and, and this is the requirement from the outside. As consumers, We we are co-creative now. I mean, the most valuable companies in the world today are not companies that necessarily make things think about it um, Facebook Facebook is a platform it's not yeah. a product yeah right it's a co-creative platform if we took all our stuff out of Facebook what would Facebook left. be Yeah. if you took all our stuff out of all our videos out of YouTube what would YouTube be if you took all our tweets out of Twitter what would Twitter be so the most valuable organizations in the world that are starting to emerge, organizations that in a weird way provide architectures of participation. They they allow platforms for augmentation. They, they allow human expression to exist. So as leadership in businesses, we need to understand that it is not about understanding technology. It's more so about comprehending humanity. We have to understand humanity more now because technology is prolific. It's out there. So it's it's kind of like in the days of electricity, when electricity was discovered. You know, we, we didn't know where it was going to go, what its model was going to be. Um, but three things happened to electricity, right? It, 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 it moved away from being – you know, the first time people made money out of electricity was when they paid a penny to go touch Tesla's arc or to see Tesla's arc <laughs> in the tent behind yeah. the tent at state fairs. Yeah. So it was hackers – Rendering Tesla's arc in the tent and you paid a penny and you went and then you came out, your hair raised and you're like, what the f-? wow. Yeah, right? Yeah. And that's the first time electricity was monetized. Then it became a fashion symbol. It moved from that to a fashion symbol. People downtown Manhattan slept with the lights on. Just to be- show uh, that they were, they were wealthy. Yeah. You know, it had no purpose. It didn't have its impact on the Industrial Revolution at that point. You literally had a hacker making electricity on your basement or the side of your house in an unconventional way. It didn't matter. You paid him huge amounts of money and you slept with the lights on because affluency was depicted by ambiency. Mm. You know, you walked past the house, wasn't candlelighted. So it became a fashion symbol. And then something happened to electricity. It disappeared. It. It. Firstly, we figured out how to convey it over vast distances, which took it out of the home and it put it on a cloud. So we had the electrical grid slash cloud. Then we developed standards to TED onto it, ACDC. And then we suddenly had prolific standards. And suddenly organizations started plugging their big equipment and machines into this thing called the electrical grid or cloud. And then the third thing happened. And that was a permanent utilization rate. A commercial model emerged. And that was the instantiation. That's when electricity had its impact on the industrial revolution. That's when it became prolific. Now we have electricity everywhere. It's on your arm in your in your watch. Yep. It's in your car. It's on the headsets that we are wearing. It's in the studio it's so it's not the electricity of things, it's electricity in things. It's everywhere, but nowhere. So when we those three things happened, the overall arching thing was electricity disappeared. It disappeared. So the sustainability of businesses post that world was not understanding how electricity is generated and what electricity is. It's it was just there. It was about its consequence. About what it incurs, about what it infers. Mm. Businesses had to think less about what it was. They had to think about what does it mean? And I think we're there now. I think because of technology's disappearance, technology's dissipating. People yeah. say like, wait a minute. The future of technology, is, the future of technology is the dissipation of technology. It's not more technology. But, but don't you feel organizations
1: are still holding on to it? Though? It's, yeah, they're, and they're, and I get the yeah. sense that it, there's still this kind of belief yeah. that that there is Inherent value in controlling it. You know, I mean, and I'm yeah. using the electricity analogy. I mean, no one wants to run a power station, right? No one. Um, but
0: technology, we still have this. Is it just a timing thing or what do you no, make of it? I think, I think it is a legacy thing. And I just think, I think you're right. I think it's a timing thing. You, you, I, lo- I think we're living in a world. Well, take a look at outside the enterprise. Inside the enterprise, it's all about the CIO and owning infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. if you take a look at where we are, um, you know, people don't want to own things anymore. Because of technology. They yeah. want to access things. Yeah. You know, the, bur- the burden of ownership versus the benefits of access. You know, before I, you know, the vinyl I'd buy and you'd walk in my house and I had a wall of vinyl LPs and then cassette decks and then CDs. Yeah. And then iTunes came along and gave us the ability to buy songs on an individual level. But that is even like cumbersome. So I own thousands of songs. That means I have to manage it and yeah. it doesn't really travel well. And then things like, you know, Deezer comes up. You know, Deezer, you pay Deezer, you know, three dollars ninety nine and you have all the music that you want to listen to across multiple platforms and media. And they've sorted That's it much for much you much and they manage it for and you. And they recommend things based yeah. on your and 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 so what we see is we move from physical and then suddenly it's gone. You don't own it anymore. Mm. So we we don't want to own things. We don't want to own cars anymore. We're on an Uber. Mm. Why own a car? It doesn't make sense. In the future, why did you buy a car? It doesn't make sense because public transportation will be so well integrated and so seamless that we'll think less about the car. We'll just think about how do we get from A to B. I mean, the Google autonomous driving vehicle. You know, that was the. So let me tell you, before the Google autonomous driving, you know, we had had the map book in the car. Yeah. When you got lost, you took geo. Geo, what the the technology of Geo was built into an atom structure called a map book. You put it on your lap and you paged to A7. You saw where you were and then you kind of navigated your way. Away. It, was, it was great. It didn't have a battery. Right? <laughs> yeah. And it worked very well. And people still use it today and it works very well. But then we moved from that to what? A beautiful... Maps, like Google Maps, TomTom, Tom, Garmin, the devices only a few people had, and then it became more, now everyone has Geo. You have Geo in your iPhone there, I've got Geo in my Android phone, I've got Geo in my Garmin fitness track, I've got Geo everywhere, right? And it's, the question is, what's the future of Geo? A better Google Maps, a more annotated Google Maps? Sure, but what's the big tectonic jump? It's the Google Autonomous Driving Vehicle. Yep. So when the blind guy gets in the car and says, take me to Taco Bell, he doesn't engage with Geo physically. He doesn't engage with Geo visually. He engages us with it consequentially. And that's where we are now today. We are less about understanding the technology, touching it, feeling it, configuring it, etc. We are about accessing it. And that's why things like cloud computing are so pivotal. And that's it's going to have a big impact. Companies like T-Systems, IBM Consulting Services, Microsoft. You're going to see Microsoft just announced just the other day, I think yesterday or the day before, they're laying off a significant amount of their sales force. 10% of their workforce. Yeah, Yeah. the workforce because Mm. cloud computing. Because customers are no longer buying technology. They want to access technology. They want a subscription services, and they want as much as they want per month. And they want to utilize it when they want, and when they don't, it gets switched off. Just like electricity. We walk in the room, you use it, and then we walk out, we switch it off. We don't think about where it's going to come from. We don't think about managing it. Mm -hmm. We don't think about all those complicated things. We think about utilizing it. So we live in a world of the consequence of technology. We live in a world of the inference. And, and now, you know, people on the outside of the organization has better technology than on the inside of the organization. So the big enterprise struggle right now is what does this mean? Because it's changing models. I mean, the, the, the value of owning a car. West Bank is going to go away. So the asset that you finance today. Yes. In the next decade, that asset's going to be meaningless because people won't value that asset. Yeah. Um, just like they don't value owning a track or a cassette deck anymore. They, they value accessing music. Yeah. That's what they want. And we keep seeing this. There's so many examples of it. You know, why own the movies? Just get a Netflix subscription. Yes. Or an Amazon Prime subscription and you get all the movies that you want to watch. Why, why own it? We are moving away from an ownership model to an access model because of the proliferation of technology. And this is affecting enterprises in a significant way and now we're now in a world where you know things are getting very scary even for technologists so yes. microsoft laying off microsoft technology salespeople. so we thought about the manufacturing guys losing their jobs because of robotics but guess what even technology guys are losing their jobs yeah because of technology so the question is where do we go And we live in a world now of artificial intelligence you know, everyone has this different way of describing AI mm. and, and, you know, machine learning and IOT and, you know, I get this question a lot, you know, executives ask me, talk, talk to me about AI. Everyone's talking to me about AI. We're like, what is this thing? Should I be concerned? Should I be, what do I do about it? So, so we need to be, we need to take a step back and define AI because I think every startup that comes to me now that talks to me personally, uh-huh. the next 10,000 startups, like Kevin Kelly says, is take any idea and add AI, ai basically that's the formula for the next 10,000 startups it's just like when we said take any idea and add the internet and that was the 10,000 startups that we saw so yes. ebay google facebook it was you know c- collaboration mixed in with the internet and you got facebook yes. you know you got c- commerce um retail mixed in with the internet and you got amazon mm. you uh, you keep going right so so we now live in a world this dispensation moving forward um let's call it the next Five thousand days of the internet because the internet really—I mean, the, the mainstream internet is about five thousand days old. Yes, days. Yeah, so the next five thousand days, I think, the next five thousand days will be about AI, and I think it will be about anything at AI, and that will be the new mantra, and, and that's what investors will. So invest let's in. define AI. Okay, though. so so so, so so what we, we so if you take a look at it, we in the, in the um, agricultural revolution, you know, what we had was people took. Um, Organic flesh and use the power in flesh to to operate and deliver and be productive, okay. so the farmer took the plow, he made a plow, but he needed the oxen, so it, we tamed animals and we used it was hard labor right so we took organic power. then, with the discovery of electricity, we suddenly had artificial power. So, you know, you could, you could, you know, build a combustion engine came from that and, and, um, you know, you didn't have the water pump that you pumped with the donkey or you pulled the pump. Suddenly you had an electrical pump or at least you had something electrical in the background that created water pressure in the pumping system. So you had water. So now it became an electrical pump. We're now moving into a world where it's, it's, it's smartness. So, so before you, let's take it back. So before, it was about how did you get from point A to B? You walked and walked and walked and walked. And then we gave you a horse, right? And then it was about horsepower. Yes. And you rode the horse. So you tamed an animal and you rode the horse or the donkey to get from point A to B. So you had a horse that you sat on organically. And then the combust- combustion engine, artificial power came along. And then we gave you 250 horses in an, in a, in an artificial object. In a steel box. In a steel box. So yeah. you sat. Now you, you had 250 horses at the pedal. 500 horses at your back and call. Yes. See how we exponentially jump yes. in power and capability. And and from going from organic fresh to artificial power being derived from electricity, and thus the combustion engine, everything that you see today in the studio, everything, look around you, wherever you are listening to this, that was made from artificial power. Now we're moving into a world of not, you know, to, a horse that you ride on, 250 horses in the car. We're asking the question Are that, you know, 250 minds in the car. There's now 250 intelligences coalescing, integrating, coagulating, interoperating to deliver you a smart vehicle, a car or a truck that can drive itself. So suddenly we are harnessing collective intelligences in a a way that's Quite scary. Yeah, I was about to say because the 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 narrative is that this is
1: scary territory because it starts to, I guess, infringe on our what we believe is our you know um, divine right as human beings. You get what I mean,
0: which is to apply our minds to things. We, We we tend to feel that that is our. That's what but, def- but, but wait, wait, wait. So I think that's where the opportunity is going to lie for humanity. So I love what Kevin Kelly says. He says, you know, if and, – and the book Inevitable. You know, it's just The Inevitable. It's a brilliant book. Uh, just And the first – f- the chapters that deal with AI is quite phenomenal. And, and this is where I'm getting a lot of the things that I'm sharing with you today. If something can be measured in efficiency or productivity, a machine is going to do that. Okay. The things that are not productive, not efficient – are the things that human beings will do. Science is not efficient. Making music and creativity is not efficient. Um, experiences, etc., are not measured in productivity. We are going to have to change our business models. We are going to have to change our focal points because the things that can be measured in productivity and efficiency, the machines will do, and they'll do better than you and I. But that's what they should do, and that's going to make the world a better place. We need to focus as human beings on the inefficient things, right? On the things where creativity is required, invention is required, Mm. um, um, expression is is required. That's, That's where the next dispensation of humanity resides. It doesn't reside in you organically just like the horse got disintermediated by the car just like the blacksmith that made horseshoes suddenly when the car came along that we didn't need blacksmiths anymore the same way the truck driver now needs to watch out in the United States because the truck driving is the number one job in the US that's the number one occupation in the United States is the truck driver that's the number one industry that employs the most people in the United States is truck driving and guess what the jobs in the next decade are over autonomous driving trucks will come so the question is what you know, how do we move those people? But I think we, we've got it. when we think about jobs and we think about insecurity, we always got to – I love what Tim O'Reilly says. He says the only way we'll run out of jobs is when we run out of work. And the only time we'll run out of work is when we run out of problems. And we still have a lot of problems. But, you know, we can't conceptualize the jobs that are we're yeah. going to have. I mean, if you go back to the agricultural revolution and you talk about um, a therapist to a guy in the field plowing, he'll look at you like, what is that? If you talk to him about a yoga instructor – He's like, what? What are you talking about? Mm. See, now that dispensation in that age where we were, things like that that were were, wasn't even thought of, conceptualized. So so think about it this way. I love that somebody said it somewhere. He said, uh, my kid is in grade three and the job that my kid will do one day has not even been conceptualized or established yet. Yeah, yeah. So there are people in the school system right now that will be doing things in the future that we have not, jobs that we haven't even defined yet. we don't even know yet, but they're coming. But I mean, we are, we're in a world now of of AI and AI we need to be careful you know AI is not um the computer playing chess against kasparov in the corner you know it is not um uh, you know Watson in the medical you know world yeah. you know, being able to decipher cancers and and you know um and do all of that stuff that that those are in, that is an intelligence but the best derivative of that is when you take kasparov the best chess player in the world is not blue It's not Watson. It's not, it's not, what the best player in the world is Kasparov plus the AI. Okay. They call them centaurs. Yeah. Those are the best um, chess players in the world. So when you take AI and you augment the human, that's when you get the best derivative of something. You, you, the best, uh, the best application for AI in the medical sector is not Watson being applied to a bunch of problems. It's Watson with the doctors, with the doctor augmented. Uh, looking at a problem, that is an incredible resultant. So we're living in a, we, we're going to get exponential capabilities. I mean, you've, if I told you today, um, that in the future, you'll be able to land in Moscow and you'll know you'll know how to find an Italian restaurant in the quickest amount of time, walking, cycling, public transportation or driving in less than 10 seconds. If I told you that 15 years ago, you're going, you're nuts. Yeah. yeah. No, that's impossible. Yeah. What do you do today? Yeah. Look at the power that you have. That's AI. We think AI is coming. AI is here. AI Mm. is in Netflix. AI is in Google. Google search is in AI. There are – what we need to realize is the future now is here. And AI is not the big blue in the corner. It's not the thing that plays the chess. AI is the orchestration of intelligences. AI is the coalescence and the coming together of disparate capabilities that machines have, not humans, to make what we do as humans better. That's AI, and and how do we ensure that as South Africans and
1: as Africans, we're not watching the movie that that we are directing it, we're starring in it, and 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 in effect, we're we're writing the story because you know if I look at, you know, we spoke about cloud computing, so something that's here now. I mean, the reality is that it's only, you know, if there's jobs being lost, they in. In country, you know, so the data centers will still be run by Microsoft or whatever other yeah. organization you pick. Um, the innovation will still be done by these companies, and so how do we cover
0: our space within that? Look, there's, there's, it's a two-sided coin. I think that the one side, South Africa will be a, a Africa will be impacted because the the generic efficiency productivity jobs uh will be gone you know uh, uh, what do we call that um mboing uh, call center staff yeah that's over machines will do call centering better than you can and they will we see bots emerging etc so yes. the call center industry the things that are productive and, efi- and efficient will dissipate the question so, so let's take a step back i you know people ask me about africa You know, a couple of things about Africa. Number one is I believe, and it's statistically, that the next billion minds that will be lit up in the world on the internet from a connectivity perspective exist in Africa. The last billion exist here. When you unlock so much latent human capital, it's always incredible to see the resultant of it. I mean, if you take a look at the internet with the billions of people on it and take a look at what we have now, take a look at, you know, open source software, it's made by the crowd so the question is the next billion users coming from africa what will what will be the net effect that'll be interesting because why because these people being unlocked just like we went from nothing to mobile quicker than anyone else we are going when we're unlocking these billion minds on african continent. we're going from nothing to ai and when we go from nothing to the world of ai wow yeah because you know are we going to get the next twitter from africa no are we going to get the next Facebook in Africa? No. Are we going to get next the Google from Africa? No. What we're going to get is the Google of agriculture. We're going to get the Facebook of water purification. We're going to get the Yahoo of healthcare coming from Africa. Because in Africa, you can't play. It's, it's, it's not a world where you build a social media network and do the fun stuff. Yeah. Africa has real world human challenges that are global. That's why when Thumbs Up was built in South Africa, the challenges that we had when we overcame them, Suddenly our product, not because we intended to, by consequence, had global applicability. Suddenly our product could live easily in Australia yeah, because I a mean, sophisticated society. Everyone has iPhones. Easy, easy. Everyone speaks English. It was so easy to go there. Um, our product can go to Asia because the emerging economies in Asia look exactly like Africa. So we don't get questioned around the legitimacy of our technology. So when you build stuff here, it has global applicability. So back to the point. I believe with the next billion latent human minds being unlocked. You know, Peter Diamandis' book, when you apply technology to anything, it establishes abundance. The technology application to Africa is unlocking the latent, abundant human minds. And that billion users are going to awake, be lit up, connected. But not just be connected. They're going to be connected in a world where AI will be available to them. They'll be connected in a world where we'll have disparate intelligences at their and call. And when those human beings take a look at their local challenges where they grow up around healthcare, care, their local challenges around financial services, their local challenges around agricultural challenges, when all these industries, the exciting thing about Africa is because we deal with real stuff here. If you take a look at our minds, that's going to get unlocked, And you mix it up with AI. I think the next transversal human problems that will be solved in a spectacular way will be done on this continent.
1: Wow. And my last question for you, because you've kind of answered a question that I normally ask, which is around vision for Africa, but I, but I believe you've captured it quite well there. Disruption. I mean, the show is about disruption. We try to not define it, but to seek, to seek it. You know, we pursue it. Um, what would you, how would you define it for yourself?
0: I think for me, disruption is taking a look at things that hurt people taking a look at things that just if you could change them could spectacularly affect people's lives transversely if you do those things that's positive disruption you know disruption for disruption's sake is is, is just what it is right yeah but but meaningful disruption is when it's led by conviction and i got to come back to that that don't your underlying framework should not be about passion. Your underlying framework should not be about failure embracing. Your underlying, you know, your substrate of everything that you are should be laid based upon a conviction. And that conviction is disrupting something positively for the net effect of human gain and changing people's lives. That's what it's all about. And in Africa, there are so many people that require Things. There are so many problems that we have here. There are so many opportunities that we have here. This is where you want to be on the planet right now. Is here. Because this is where human challenges are being experienced tangibly. And to jump over all the legacy and apply that, um, is a massive opportunity for a technological entrepreneur. And again, the assets that you have now, you know, the world where we live in now, where you can take any African challenge and apply AI. Not only will you solve the African problem, you'll solve a human problem. Because that's what we have in Africa. Absolutely. We have a
1: human problem. Thank you so much, Stafford. It has been completely, completely engrossing. And uh, really, I mean, enriching as well speaking to you today Thank you for joining us on the show Undisrupted with myself from Pumi And to our guests for being with us in the studio um, Thank you to T-Systems, our sponsors Once again for making the platform possible um, Please do go to za To get more information on our sponsors To access the podcast and download it Um, You can go to www.unoutsource.co.za or to cliffcentral.com where this podcast as well as all our other podcasts with our guests are available. Um, We'll see you again next week uh, for another show. Thank you very much. This is cliffcentral.com.